So you're in the right room if you're looking to hear about protein in the developing world, India as a model for meat substitutes in LMICs. Varun Deshpande is the managing director for India at the Good Food Institute, where he works to build India's market for plant-based and cell-based alternatives to animal products. He grew up in Mumbai and studied chemical and biomedical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Aside from his work with the Good Food Institute, he is working to establish an EA movement building nonprofit in India. Please join me in welcoming Varun to the stage. Let me introduce myself. My name is Varun Deshpande. Um, as Roxanne said, I'm the managing director for India at the Good Food Institute, uh, and I'm here to talk to you today about our work in India as a as a model for the rest of the developing world. Um, and as you can see from that title, which really rolls off the tongue, uh, the idea is that the developing world is somewhat different from the developed world. Low and middle income countries or developing countries may present a different pathway for plant based and cell based meat, which are the categories of food uh, on which the Good Food Institute works. So I have the privilege of going after Bruce Friedrich, our executive director for GFI US, uh, and I'm going to actually not repeat a number of things that he said, but I will quickly uh, sort of gloss over them. Our work at the Good Food Institute is primarily informed by one burning question. How are we going to feed 9.7 billion people by 2050 through systems which don't negatively impact climate change, scarce natural resources, biodiversity, food security, uh, a great many cause areas that matter to EAs. Uh, and if we're thinking in terms of that 2050 lens, which I guess EAs would call just short of medium term, um, we have to think about the developing world very deeply. In 2050, uh, Africa will account for something like 25% of the world population. Asia will account for 53%. India will account for one-sixth. That's about 16% of the world population. So if you add up all those three regions, uh, not even including Southeast Asia, you have nearly 80% of the world's population. And of course, as Bruce has already mentioned right before me, uh, the goals for the Good Food Institute are informed by cause areas which are deeply um, central to the effective altruism movement and to development the world over. Animal welfare uh, is obviously something that's affected by factory farming. We're also uh, an organization that works very deeply in the area of food security, which is really important to me, especially in India, because we do have problems with nutrition security in our country. We couldn't possibly build up a system that grows nine calories of input for a chicken in order to get one calorie of output in the form of flesh. Um, of course, none of these are a secret. Uh, the issues of antimicrobial resistance, of zoonotic disease, uh, of environmental degradation associated with factory farming have been well known and have been getting better known over the decades. And of course, now that I've said all of this stuff and I've been incredibly convincing, all of us are going to go home and stop eating meat or animal sourced foods. And everyone who watches this video is going to stop doing that too. And this problem will be solved, right? No, not true at all. Um, all around the world, meat consumption has been growing year on year. In fact, this year we're going to be eating more meat than we've ever eaten before. Uh, and the Good Food Institute was founded on the basis of this problem, which is we're not going to solve this issue, which is global demand for meat, unless we actually appeal to consumers on the basis of demand-side factors that actually matter to them. So figuring out what those factors are, and it's usually overwhelmingly price, taste, and convenience, meeting people where they are, um, that's what's going to dictate whether what we work on is going to be taken up and replace factory farming.
In a Western context, plant-based and cell-based meats have taken off to a pretty great extent. It's just the beginning. Uh, but as Bruce mentioned, plant-based meats are something like 1% of the U.S. meat industry. Uh, and we think they will continue to grow. But this is a story that's really been embedded very deeply in the Western context for now. What would it take for this to, to grow in the Indian context or grow in the, in the low- and middle-income country context? We really have to examine a number of key questions in order to know how we might get there. But first, let's think about maybe a framework to think about those countries and why they're different. It's important to remember that meat isn't really eaten that widely in India. Uh, it's a country which consumes per capita five kilograms of meat, which is per person per year. And that's compared with 120 kilograms in the U.S., and this is true across many low- and middle-income countries. So Indonesia is at about 13 kilograms. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is actually slightly higher than that. So if we think about India specifically, using the framework of urgency versus importance, we might think that it's not a very urgent economy in which to work because people aren't eating that much meat right now. And even if you compare it with some of the other countries in which the Good Food Institute works, like China and Brazil, they're eating far more meat than we are in India right now. So does this mean that we would want to focus primarily all of our resources on those developed or upper middle income countries as opposed to focusing at all on developing countries? Uh, I don't think so. And the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization doesn't think so either. Much of the growth in poultry demand over the next decade or so is going to come from places like India. So this is from the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Uh, and that red landmass right there in the center is India. The only reason that you're not seeing sub-Saharan Africa as more red on this map is because it's in the next decade and perhaps incomes haven't risen just yet to, to meet what we would expect. So if we're going to address this growing poultry demand, this growing animal source food demand without all those attendant negative externalities, uh, what would be the imperative there or the opportunity there? Uh, as you can see in this sort of ethnically appropriate slide, um, a theme that we that we touch upon a lot in India is the idea of leapfrogging, which is when newer technologies sort of skip over or supplant older systems just by virtue of being better. This is a huge opportunity in a country like India. We don't think it's going to be clean. Of course, the infrastructure for animal source foods is being installed right now as we speak. The industrialization of the supply chain is taking place right now. Um, but there is certainly an opportunity that over the next decade or decades, we may be able to create the systems, the capacity, the talent pool for plant-based and cell-based meats such that it could overtake on economic on an economic basis uh, the industrial animal agriculture system. But what would it take in order to get there? Uh, well, there are several things that one can do to get there, and I'm going to focus a little bit on a few of them right now. Uh, we've talked a little bit during the course of the conference about fitting into current priorities for a lot of these countries, uh, meeting governments where they are, meeting people where they are. And I think that that's going to be the most crucial area, particularly in India. The work that we've done has been uh, successful for that reason. So a lot of these countries, India, Indonesia, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, have a lot of attention and a mandate that's focused on transforming themselves internally over the next decades. Uh, a lot of those areas in which they're focusing do have an overlap with the work the Good Food Institute does, the work that the plant-based meat and cell-based meat sector are doing. So for example, when it comes to climate change, 
India has taken a pretty leading role, a vocal role, in saying that they're going to adhere to the terms of the Paris Climate Agreement, to the Sustainable Development Goals. In fact, in the same year that uh, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, the two biggest plant-based meat companies, won the UN's Champions of the Earth Award, Prime Minister of India Narendra Modi won a Champions of the Earth Award as well for his vocal leadership on the climate agreement. Additionally, and I don't think this is going to come as a secret, uh, as a surprise to anyone, nutrition is a huge theme in India and something that we have to focus on over the next decade. Uh, we do have some of the highest cohort rates of malnutrition, including, importantly, iron deficiency anemia, neural tube defects, the attempt in stunting, wasting, etc. Uh, and it really means that if we're going to fit into the context of these countries, we have to make food systems clear the bar of nutrition in addition to just the sensory bar and the and the affordability bar as well. So what that means for our sector is uh, this theme of protein and protein energy malnutrition that's currently taking hold in these countries. Uh, we have to make sure that we're aligning those interests with sustainable protein or affordable protein that's both wholesome, good for the nutrition system, good for the environment, and good for the population as a whole. And that's something we've been quite successful with at the Good Food Institute is embedding into that context and framing what we do as being crucial to the nutrition security of the country. Of course, when it comes to nutrition security, I just wanted to add a quick point that food waste and food safety are huge issues in these countries. So something like 40% of all fruits and vegetables in India are wasted in the supply chain. We don't really have a cold chain infrastructure right now. It's being developed right now. Um, right, when, we, when we talk about animal-sourced foods, uh, the reception to this slide is generally really great because people have never thought about this problem in this context. They've never thought about the fact that when you grow nine calories of of crops to feed to a chicken in order to get one calorie out in the form of flesh, what you're doing is you're competing against humans. And in places like India where population density is through the roof, you simply could not build up that system without terrible consequences in the future. So in addition to sort of messaging along these key themes and seeing where we can fit in uh, and align with these key interests in these countries, what would we need to do to make sure that this takes off? This is an impossible burger. Um, it's made from plants. A lot of you probably know that because it's made from plants, it uses 95% less land, 97% less water, releases 87% less greenhouse gases, etc., etc. But this is a Western product. This was created because Americans are eating three burgers a week, which I love America, but that's just crazy town, right? For all, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, for human health, for the environment, for animals. Um, is this going to be the hero category in India? I don't know. India doesn't have a highly homogenous eating culture like the U.S. does. Um, we eat various types of foods that could emerge as a hero category, right? There's kebabs, there's biryani, there's keema, many of you know these foods. Um, what's interesting and exciting is that the, the companies that emerge in these countries over the next decades will have to do a lot of this work for themselves, uh, and that's going to create a lot of interest and excitement in the sector. Another opportunity is looking at the raw materials or the inputs for plant-based meat specifically. Um, Bruce mentioned this. I agree with this gentleman when he says, we've barely scratched the surface when we examine the inputs for the plant-based meat sector. So in India, we have pulses. We have, obviously, moong beans. Just is making just scramble from moong beans. We have uh, different kinds of lentils. We have millets, which are a great indigenous crop that are highly sustainable. We're, we're focusing on evaluating all of these crops uh, and their value chains as possible inputs for this sector, because what it would mean is more innovation, more sources of 
uh, of plant-based protein that could function as inputs for this industry, and then more variety for consumers, which is what matters. Another area where the developing world can seriously contribute to this sector, and you please don't read the words on that slide. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to worry about that for now. The idea is that cell-based meat, uh, it comes from tissue engineering, which has been expensive because it's at a lab scale. When you scale up cell-based meat, you're applying a food lens to it, which is how you really get that cost competitiveness and that validated safety, which is, what, which is how you get a thriving industry that's a food industry. Countries like India, which have a really good outsourcing ecosystem for industries like, like the biopharmaceutical industry, have a great role to play in this. So the talent base exists for the biopharmaceutical industry in India. It could be directly transferable into this. Bruce mentioned that we go to colleges all the time and talk about how if someone's doing work in an, in an allied area that's directly translational into this, they might consider this industry instead. And this is a huge opportunity in countries like India and later on in sub-Saharan Africa as well. And then the last opportunity I really want to highlight is the opportunity to tap into budgets that are much larger than what's been tapped into for this sector already. We've received a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to focus on evaluating some of the questions I outlined earlier with indigenous crops. So we're creating an open access uh, nutrition database to evaluate the functionality, the scientific data behind three types of millet and how they could be used as plant protein inputs. What's interesting here is for some of the reasons I mentioned before, that the work that we do aligns with so many different cause areas, uh, it allows us to overlap with some of these really large foundations even if the end products are different. So the plant protein sector could be used to reformulate cookies or biscuits in India with millets and improve nutritional status for those foods, which are staple foods. But the building blocks are exactly the same for the plant-based meat industry. And so what we've been able to do here is focus on al aligning those two things together and seeing if we can tap those funds. And then, of course, we've also had some success with guiding investment from government uh, you can tell that I made this slide because it's really badly designed, but um, we were able to secure a grant uh, in partnership with the Research Institute in Hyderabad, uh, which is actually the largest grant ever made by any government in the world for research uh, into cell-based meat until Singapore blows it out of the water by two orders of magnitude next month or something. But we'll wait until then. Until then, we have the honor of that. Uh, we were also able to get a mandate from the Maharashtra government to focus on building a center of excellence or a research center in clean meat, also something of a, a first. And that's the kind of thing that really gives me hope. So when we meet with government in countries like India and in Singapore, also in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, etc., we realize that these newer markets for plant-based and cell-based meat are pretty ripe for this kind of innovation. Because when I talk to the, the premier policy think tank uh, in India, in March 2018, uh, two weeks later, the CEO of the think tank wrote this op-ed in which he touted Impossible Foods as a truly transformational company. Uh, the work that's ongoing internationally has a home in developing countries because it aligns so deeply with a lot of the things that they care about. And I think that we could have a serious effect on the way those countries eat for the next decades, but also on the way the entire food industry around the world sources its ingredients by doing so. Now I want to end on a something of a hopeful note. Um, I think that none of this is guaranteed. 
uh, Bruce and Lewis talked about this earlier. Um, progress is obviously not a natural law. We need as much talent and money as possible going towards these really pressing problems. But the work that we've been doing in India has made me insanely optimistic and impatient optimist um, that we can that we can catalyze a sort of leapfrogging of the animal agriculture industry in these countries, that we can compete on the basis of things that matter to consumers and, in fact, outcompete animal agriculture on those bases. Uh, but we just need a lot more help. So I'm hoping that some of the people in this room and anyone watching this video uh, will get in touch with us. We have our jobs posted on our website, obviously. We're hiring all across the world, uh, in India, greater China, uh, Europe, Israel, Brazil, and in the United States. Thank you. I think this is also a, a topic that hasn't gotten a ton of play, and I think intuitively people wouldn't focus on India because it doesn't have much of a um, meat-eating um, culture or habit thus far. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I want to respond to that. Yeah, go for it. So the idea that India is a primarily vegetarian country is definitely incorrect. So it's a bit of a misconception. Um, with 71% of Indians saying self-identifying as non-vegetarian, uh, the idea that religion is such a stricture or an influential stricture in how people eat, uh, to me, that means that it's not. So as people get more and more wealthy and they're able to buy animal-sourced foods, my guess is that they will. Uh, it's also something that's a bit of a secular shift when people move to urban centers, get uprooted from family values, uh, where those religious norms were being enforced. So we are seeing a trend towards increasing meat consumption, and that's really what we're trying to address here. Yeah. Right. Yeah, can you say something about uh, how you expect socially for meat alternatives to be uh, adopted? Have you done any um, heat feelers uh, to see how the, the general public would take it? Yeah, we have an interesting study um, that we did, which was a cross-cultural consumer acceptance study in India, China, and the U.S. We did it using Pozitli, uh, which is Luke Freeman's uh, web, Luke Freeman's tool. He's in the audience here. Um, we were able to determine that um, despite higher degrees of food neophobia, which is a fear of technology in food, <laughs> and um, a lower degree of meat affinity, which is just an attachment to meat, uh, India had the highest degree of acceptance for plant-based meat as compared with China and the U.S., and China had the highest degree of acceptance for cell-based meat, and India was second there. So there is definitely a feeling that some of these newer markets might have an easier to acceptance than the U.S. Can you speak to other newer markets that, while they may be smaller, might be uh, quite easy to enter for similar reasons? Uh, Indonesia, it's not small. It's about a, you know, 800, one billion people soon. Um, I think that a lot of these countries which have um, flexitarianism by default, so in Indonesia you have days like or in Vietnam and Indonesia, you have days like Half Moon Day where people eat mock meats because they don't want to eat meat on those days. It's a natural uh, fix to be able to switch out meat for plant-based meat as long as it tastes the same and it satisfies all those cultural criteria as well. Right. Um, given that nutrition is a priority for India right now, how do you advocate for something like plant-based or clean meat, which isn't scalable and shelf-ready source of protein yet? We need to take... Uh, the lens of nutrition to this problem right from the get-go. And we've been doing that. So when we talk to government in these countries, we say, look, you care about affordable nutrition, you care about supplying protein to everyone, 
this is something that can be made shelf stable right now without preservatives. You don't need a cold chain infrastructure to transform it, to transport it from Mumbai to the most remote parts, remote parts of the country. Uh, and they're really receptive to that. So when we meet with organizations in government, oftentimes they have their nutrition representative chair the meeting, uh, which is a really encouraging sign, I think. In uh, low and middle income countries where dietary diversity and achieving nutritional adequacy is particularly challenging, how are you thinking about the nutritional composition of plant-based meat alternatives as they compare to animal meat, specifically thinking about things like protein quality, micronutrient composition, and bioavailability of these nutrients? Well, what's great is, I don't know if anyone knows this, but the Beyond Burger already has four times more iron than a regular beef burger. So when it comes to micronutrients, I think that everyone's thinking about this problem. Um, there are some incredibly smart people in this sector, obviously, so they, they kind of are seeing around this corner. Um, I think that from the perspective of both diet diversity and consumer choice, it's really important to have some sort of explosion in this sector of the variety of choices that consumers have. So when my mom walks into a supermarket two years down the line, she might not buy something that's made from soy or wheat, but she'll buy something that's made from millet. And that's what we're trying to catalyze here. What do you think about the promise of mixed meat alternatives? So half meat, half uh, plant-based meat, for instance. It's interesting. It's been happening increasingly in the US. Uh, it happens by default in places like India where people want to perhaps fool the consumer a little bit about what's in their meat. Um, so you have soy granules that are mixed in with meat in places like India by default. Um, and that's a cost-saving measure. Um, we definitely believe that we'd like to go for a full solution rather than a halfway solution, but anything that helps us get there. Um, so you, you mentioned that nutritional security is a particularly compelling uh, argument in India. Uh, how much do you think you'd have to adapt the argument depending on the country that you're trying to work in? So building those coalitions of support in each country are going to be crucial to success in every one of them. The fact that factory farming is a central node that affects all these various cause areas allows you to be agile about that kind of messaging and fit into those narratives everywhere. And I think that we are really confident that we'd be able to do that regardless of which market we're in because it does touch so many different cause areas. Great. So I think that you know, if it's sub-Saharan Africa, it's also likely to be nutrition security. Food safety is a huge issue in China. People want to um, you know, make sure that they know what the supply chain for their food is. So imagine, uh, I can't really check with each animal whether there's a pathology or whether there's a disease or something that's going on with each animal. But with cell-based meat, which is meat made directly from the animal cells, I know exactly what's going on inside the fermenter in, in which the meat is made. So we're talking about a perfectly safe manufacturing system, which currently doesn't exist out there in the market. So whether it's food safety, whether it's nutri nutrition security, I think we'd be able to plug into any of these narratives. That's incredibly encouraging. Um, if you have additional questions, you can find Varun for his office hours at 5 p.m. Uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for your talk. Thank you so much.